0: Are you Dutch?
1: No, absolutely not. It's complicated because my <laughs> mother, no, no, I feel, I don't feel insulted, but if you knew what you were talking about, then I'd be... Well, bit... when, when the way Phil <laughs> asked it,
2: exactly, the way Phil asked it previously, it was quite insulting, like the tone of voice. <laughs> no, no, um, sorry, go, on, like, go You on. can't
0: pretend, you can't pretend like this is like ethnic conflict in the Caucasus or the Balkans or some shit. <laughs> no, it's You true. know, Holland and Belgium, you know, like, yeah. I know Flemish yeah. and Wallons have a thing, but, you know, come
1: on. That's where Belgium is can be very boring, because their tribalism never becomes bloody. Like, it's just, <laughs> it's very, very civil. Um, no, so my... I mean, who the
3: fuck starts a revolution after the opera, you know? That's just...
1: Yeah, but the I mean... The best kind. I mean, what was good about the revolution is that it uh, accelerated industrialization in Belgium, because it would have taken them much, much longer if, if they didn't ke- uh, kick the Dutch out. So there's, there's a kind of cunning of history argument there you can make. Um, no, so my dad is Austrian and he came over in the middle of the 90s, but my mother is Flemish, so from the northern part of Belgium. But I grew up in Brussels, which makes it complicated because the whole city basically speaks French, but I went to a Dutch-speaking school in Brussels. Right. So that explains the surname, but it also explains why I can uh, converse with Dutch people, for example.
0: Okay, I'm sorry about that because Austrian is much worse than Dutch. So. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I-, I think... I think with the Flemish were like big collaborators during the Second World War. I, I don't think we need to talk about Austria. So I think I've got those two down already. But...
2: <laughs> we do need it. We need at some point to, to to provide a definitive bunga ranking of nations as like best to us. I think.
3: So. Yeah. Yeah, we do. English, at yeah. the... but not just not just on no. the axis of how much did you help Hitler, because that's. You
0: know. <laughs> It's okay because I've been calling Alex a Nazi recently. Because anybody who willingly goes so I read like I read the same essay that you read, Anton, on Brazilianization. And when yeah. I was reading it, I was thinking like anyone who willingly chooses to live in Brazil is clearly fucking insane or a
1: Nazi so i think alex is actually a nazi but so your implication is that people who unwillingly moved to brazil did so because they had to flee nazi germany you mean which know, willing, was which
3: which willing, was my family
0: chose, I, I hasten to add that, yeah but so. it's not you don't have the excuse alex now so you know so <laughs> choosing to live in brazil like you know everything you describe about it and you still choose to live there it calls into question your po- politics mm. maybe you are a nazi no, or maybe brazil. he's just
2: a sociologist like if you want to be in An the anthropologist? country
3: Yeah. Anthropologist, An anthropologist even yeah, better
0: studying studying the locals that might make sense i can see that i think the next place that... i
3: move i should move to somewhere where it's a bit more hopeful it's true i've lived in britain through the end of history and then and then brazil through the coup and end of the end of history so, well yeah though you know yeah but it's really terrible end of the end of history like much worse than elsewhere i think so
1: uh,
3: and, Ant- worry, Antone, are, you in... worse. are you in brussels at the moment
1: yeah yeah i'm, st- I'm we're still held up here Cool.
2: Um, how how is it?
0: Not good, oh, I'm guessing.
1: No, it's horrible. I mean, I've, if I feel a bit of guilty complaining insofar as if you look at what's going on in the rest of the world it really feels quite spoiled but we've had a consistent lockdown for like seven months now nothing Jesus has reopened christ and yeah it's 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 horrific have and, you have you noticed the
2: difference between brussels normally and brussels with all the <laughs> shops and restaurants
1: <laughs> that is a really offensive question to ask but
3: because um, brussels actually a has little bit of restaurants to it yeah, yeah right.
0: Right.
1: Brussels, brussels is has a a good really... places Brussels is a really nice city and like it, it sucks that the European community has become a kind of metonym that's kind of monopolized what it stands for, and it's actually so much more than that. But it's it's quite difficult because I spent basically eight years in the UK and then I came back in the year of COVID, expecting to find a sort of Brussels I always knew, and of course it resembles nothing I I knew before, and that makes it particularly painful, I guess.
3: Yeah, so, I don't think it anywhere resembles where it did previously. But how like was it, how was yeah, how is Belgium sad. locked down? I mean, like is it all only essential things open? And and I mean, are the restrictions on like your own movement? Um,
1: so it's basically a replica of the first lockdown, which is quite harsh, which implies that all restaurants are closed, all cafes are closed, most public places are closed, but you can still go to work, you can still go out, you don't have any restrictions on movement. And some schools are open but now only essential shops are open and you have to make appointments for non-essential shops. So it's wow. a slight variation on the original lockdown, but the emphasis or like the differences are in this sense, quite minimal.
0: And is there any uh, what timeline out of, out of lockdown?
1: No, I think this is the, the toughest thing actually. So if you want to talk about the cancellation of the future, it's just, it's, it, there's just no horizon to anything. So it, you can appreciate the consistency, but, Consistency makes sense if they tell you, okay, this is our deadline for vaccinations, everyone will get vaccinated by this date and logistically, this looks feasible. And instead, they just never talk in in terms of concrete dates, they never actually tell you when it's going to end. And that puts a sort of indefinite delay on your whole experience of time and it's also just very clear that the state is not in control so it can't actually make those promises and weirdly enough that makes the length even more durable because there's just no cut-off point you can even orientate yourself around insofar as okay then it will be mm-hmm. over so it's, yeah I think which no is different from the different. uk i think well yeah i, I guess make we you make a... us uh, you make us
0: feel lucky here yeah mm-hmm. but you are lucky.
3: I mean, the, let me like, just just in relative terms yeah
2: the cancellation of the future point is an interesting one because, yeah, I guess we, we have a roadmap to the future. So it's not that there is a future. It's that we, we will one day get to some place where there will be one. <laughs> which, isn't
0: the, which is no longer the present. Yeah.
2: That sounds even more difficult.
1: It is a sort of perpetual present. And it, um, I mean, not only economically, also politically, but almost in a sort of mental sense, there's just no way you can plan yeah. So not because what relies in the future is so abstract yeah. that it's also very politically disempowering because you just have to make predictions the whole time. And those predictions are purely speculative. There's just no sense of agency that comes with that sense of time.
2: I think we can all agree that we're all in a shit situation, but
0: I think, I mean, I'm in, the best in different situation. ways for different people. I'm in the, You're best in the situation. worst. No, the best, because I've been vaccinated. Uh, uh, oh, yes. I yeah, thought we were going to
2: have a, I thought we were going to have a kind of trauma Olympics like who's who is in the worst situation just to kick i have
0: door, vaccine bro. privilege and i'm happy to rub your faces in it i will, I will no, I, I,
3: to, to just give you an necessary. example of how bad things are i'm dreaming of being able if possible to spend the summer in the uk like that's <laughs> my
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: if they let me in it's yeah. the country of the future <laughs>
1: yes. this, is, this is what the the slaves dream of uh, dream of at night <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, Is it like yeah, how low yeah. how low the bar has been uh,
0: we'll has be good bar? we'll be nice to you alex don't worry i mean if you're obviously if you're let in and you don't have any of your dirty diseases you'll be bringing with you so yeah. But, yeah. well
3: that's the that's the issue we'll, we'll have to see about that um right should we get started hello welcome everyone to the very carefully planned non-hayekian Aufhebunga Bunga. My name is Alex Hocheli. It's Thursday, the 8th of April. I'm joined by, as usual, Phil Cunliffe and George Hoare, who are in the UK, and our guest today, Anton Jaeger, uh, who I feel probably doesn't need any introduction. He's been on here many times before. You probably know him. And if this is the first time listening to Aufhebunga Bunga, uh, you probably have come here because you want to listen to Anton. So um, I think we all know who he is, but uh, I'll, I'll allow him to introduce himself as well.
1: Yeah, hi. Uh, glad to be back. Uh, I'm currently holed up in Belgium, I guess I write a bit about populism. I'm currently writing an intellectual history of UBI as well, which hopefully will come out next year with Daniel Zamora. And I'm a big, big fan and compatriot of the podcast in general.
3: Excellent. And uh, I guess if we've included the uh, the early chat before the official start, you'll also have understood why Anton is Belgian. Uh, not not only not only that he is, but why. Um, which was which is Phil's probing questions, um, and that's uh, that's what Phil's going to be doing today. Uh, quite a lot of so um i I don't think phil asked why are you belgian
2: i think he said (laughs) are you belgian those two questions are different i think yes are you dutch
3: are you dutch was the actual specific question so
1: yeah perfectly valid question the first question
3: all right um let's get officially started um and where we're going to start with i'm going to run through uh, for you, listener, what we're going to be talking about. We're going to start with Belgium. Um, We haven't talked about Belgium specifically. It's it's far more interesting place, I think, than uh, people give it credit for. Um, And then we're going to talk about cash transfers and and the emerging, what seems to be the emerging cash transfer state. We're going to refer to um, Biden's uh, COVID rescue relief bill, um, other the American jobs plan that they're trying to push through in the US, what's been going on in the UK with the furlough scheme and so on. I'll talk a bit about what's happened in Brazil, um, Anton, about Belgium. And as a way of asking whether we're moving beyond neoliberalism, uh, we've obviously discussed the edges of this discussion previous times on the podcast, but we're going to try to treat it head on here, ask whether we are indeed moving, you know, out of the end of history and what part the end of neoliberalism plays in that. And then uh, maybe we're going to finish off by discussing a little bit about what is being termed neo-feudalism. Uh, we're going to ask whether that term has uh, any purchase, whether it's useful to describe the sort of economic transformations which are underway at the moment. So firstly, Belgium, um, you know, I think famously it was a, a And Anton puts this in an upcoming piece of his, that it was a a British creation to annoy the French. Um, But as I said, I think it's probably more interesting than that. Um, It's, of course, it has three different linguistic communities, four different parliaments. I think I'm correct. And Anton, feel free to jump in if I'm uh, talking nonsense. And of course, a separatist movement, um, and now a sort of bureaucratic, immobile political arrangement. So we're going to talk about all of that. um, But firstly, Anton... If you could maybe just give us a, bi- a brief geography lesson and characterize Wallonia in the south, Flanders in the north, and what kind of ties it together in, in Brussels.
1: Yeah, I think the only way to do this is comparatively, um, insofar as Flanders used to be the the Ireland of Belgium in the 19th century. So it was a mainly Catholic, highly agricultural Backwater of what basically was a sort of bourgeois class that was holed up in this metropole in Brussels, and. A series of sort of potato famines in the 1840s and 1850s just like in Ireland basically completely destroyed home industry in all these small Flemish villages and towns discharged this enormous population of surplus proletarians into the south which was Bologna which was actually the first place on the continent to industrialize on the European continent on the European mainland so after Britain partly also with British capital which was transferred shortly after the Napoleonic Wars but It was also the place where the first actual train drove um, in Europe in the 1820s and 1830s. So it was the real cradle of the Industrial Revolution in Europe. And it was a unitary state all across the 19th century, which Marx, I think, called the sort of well-hedged paradise for the capitalist and the priest. Um, But it was also an unusually liberal state insofar as it had quite a liberal constitution for 1830 and 1840. Also one of the reasons why Marx came to Brussels in the first place, because he wanted to escape censors. And then it, of course, built that massive colonial empire in the late inter-imperial race in the 19th century. And then only in the middle of the 20th century did that split between the regions actually start to take off because you had a very, very powerful Flemish separate movement, a separatist movement in the north that wanted independence. They wanted to reorient the economy around the transport node in Antwerp and in the south, Wallonia, which is kind of the north of Belgium, so like the equivalent of Northern England for Belgium, became uh, began to deindustrialize quite aggressively, and then in 1970, the Belgian state basically federalized, basically created a two language communities. You had the Dutch speakers in the north, and then you had people who sp- still spoke French in the south. Then you have this weird bourgeois enclave, which geographically is in the middle of Flanders but which culturally is much closer to Wallonia, but also culturally quite distinct insofar as it's still a kind of petty bourgeois. Yeah,
3: you might, you, you people listening might need a, a map out to, to see how <laughs> Brussels is yeah. in, in Flanders, but uh, is all kind of French speaking. Um, yeah, and I think that Anton's characterization of, of the South, I guess, if you're thinking about the South of Belgium, think about the North of England in terms of uh, rust. Yeah,
1: and I mean, if you just look at the dilapidated post-industrial factories in Liège or places like Charleroi, the first places you'll think of are not only Manchester or sort of Clyde Valley, but mainly Detroit. So it's very much a, a sort of Belgian Detroit insofar as its misery is not quite as deep and as pervasive as... The Midwest, but it has suffered really aggressive and quite catastrophically industrialization as well,
3: and, and a techno scene equivalent to Detroit's, no doubt, as well.
1: Oh, it has it has good music, <laughs> but I mean that that lasted in the nineteen nineties and two thousands. There is good Bolonian cinema, but it um, it didn't have those same ethnic divisions that you have in the U.S. scene, so it didn't produce those same subcultures mm. either.
3: So moving forward, I mean, obviously you have this uh, separatism, which kind of seems to characterize or disfigure Belgian politics and make it seem sort of immobile but maybe we should just move uh, backwards a little bit because i think in your article you talk about specifically um the the role of sort of devolution or regionalism um and the the way or the extent to which that provided the working class with some leverage or not so i mean i guess that's that's my question really um is whether the the sort of regional arrangement provided though the working class, especially in sort of deindustrializing areas with um, more purchase, more leverage in, in, in politics.
1: Yeah. I, I think it's important to keep in mind that Belgium had a very, very strong movement, uh, labor movement already in the 19th century, but that labor movement was heavily concentrated around the industrial basins in the South, but it never was a separatist or an exclusively Wallonian movement and the for example, Belgian socialists were always far more open to Flemish language rights. So Belgian socialism was always quite a national movement and never had these like clear choices between either the Flemish or the French side. Right. It's mainly that Flemish separatism takes off as a movement of the... Petit Bourgeoisie in Flanders, who have been able to maintain many of their language rights precisely because of this weird system of municipal autonomy that Belgium still had in the 19th century, which meant that if they studied at university in Dutch or they learned Dutch at home, they couldn't enter into the state bureaucracy and still speak their own language. So Flemish separatism really takes off at this sort of careers open for talent or meritocratic campaign on behalf of a Flemish bourgeoisie which is getting tired of these big bankers and these big landowners in Brussels spitting on their language and calling it uh, a sort of barbaric, <laughs> a barbaric Teutonic uh, so, distillate. In that so, so, I
3: mean, the elite, the elite are French speaking, I mean, until a certain point, yeah. And that's a question. Until what point are the elite French speaking and the kind of the, the poor people uh, Flemish?
1: Well, yes and no. Insofar as if you were in the north, in the agricultural regions, you—if you were poor or proletarian—you definitely speak Flemish. So Rosa Luxemburg visited Belgium in the early 20th century, and she made this observation, which is good to write astute, where she says, "The way you recognize a proletarian in Brussels, but also in Wallonia and certainly in Flanders, is just by what language they speak. If they speak mm. Dutch or Flemish, or mainly some of the dialects, because there was no unified Dutch at the time, they're definitely part of the proletariat." And then in the South, that was also the case because so much of the industrial labor force in Wallonia was made up of ex-Flemish agricultural laborers. But as the 20th century progresses, actually, so many Wallonians who live in the South begin to speak French and they Frenchify, as it's called. And that also explains why so many Wallonian politicians still have Flemish surnames. So they have these very words like the Wale or the jank we have these atrocious way of, of pronouncing it as the French do, but that's precisely the legacy of that uh, industrial ma- migration in the nineteenth century.
0: And is it that is it? Would it be true to say that um, with kind of uh, more recent Flemish separatism, it's also been one of those European continental countries that has pioneered the new model of populism?
1: Yes, I, I'd say so. Insofar as the Flemish are an incredibly resentful people. In that, <laughs> I mean, they're unique, uniquely resentful, I think, certainly comparatively, because they've lived in this Belgian house with a sort of francophone master. And they've only recently become more economically powerful, which has allowed them to, to gain a position of relative policy dominance as well. But culturally, they've never occupied a position of hegemony because French was still the language for the, for the cultured. People like if, if you if you wanted to make it into the big old bourgeoisie, you had to speak French. And that means that the Flemish have this particular way of always feeling resentful or always feeling they're not getting their fair share. And there are other dynamics at play, like the decline of Flemish Christian democracy, for example. But in that sense, it's a particularly resentful people, which tends to produce what you could call particularly Revanchist nationalisms as well. This
0: is great, though, because um, I think on Bunga generally we've not had enough denunciations of entire nations and people, <laughs> and so I think this is exactly what we need to
1: bring to discussions. On yeah, I'm, I'm doing Maoist Maoist self-criticism here, so I, I don't. <laughs> I'm,
2: I'm speaking as a Fleming in that sense. So, what are the what are the high points of Flemish culture? Just to just to even the uh, you know the scales a little bit, because I've had some probably the best. Chips that I've or, or fries that I've ever had in my life uh, were f- um, Flemish in in Amsterdam, but I'm not suggesting that that is the entirety, the sum total of Flemish uh, culture.
3: Do you, do you mean Antwerp or?
2: Oh yeah, no, no, in in Amsterdam there's a there's a famous um, <laughs> specifically Flemish. Flemish. <laughs> yes, it Flemish chip. Um, it's not a van. It's like a a chip shop.
1: Yeah, but Belgi- Belgians tend to avoid that at, at any cost if you're in Amsterdam, but I, they're very, like, culinary culture is definitely a part of it, um, but I think the part of the Freudian complex the Flemings have is that some of their cultural heritage is very, very difficult to distinguish just from general Belgian heritage, and no matter how much they hate the Wallonians and no matter how many linguistic divides there are, there is a painful fact that they also share a common history for more than, like, 200 years almost now, and they still have a lot of, a lot of income, a lot in common with it. Wait,
0: wait. So Anton, are you saying that you have made it into the big fr- French speaking Francophone, the Wallon bourgeoisie now?
1: Me, yeah. well, I, I, I speak French, but that will, bourgeoisie doesn't exist anymore. The Belgian elite is completely fractured. And that sort of old style, ancien regime bourgeoisie is, is now has left the stage. So, it's,
2: so it can it's be very... part of the so cos- missed... cosmopolitan anglophone podcasting <laughs> bourgeoisie now. That's, yeah, that's so fine.
1: you have the Eupolitan one in, in Brussels one, which is a kind of new segment of the ruling class, but it's very difficult to track how it slots into all those other f- factions in the Belgian ruling class.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's it's also, I mean, obviously, as you say, very fragmented, um, and you've got different kind of seats of power in Belgium, which complicate matters. I I think people will probably maybe be more familiar if they think of Belgium with Flemish separatism, and maybe we should dwell on that uh, for a second. What actually motivates Flemish separatism? Because of course, they now have to transfer money to, as they see it, to uh, the sort of post-industrial ex-coal mining areas of the South. Um, is it that that does it? It, it, it? has it captured a sort of populist energy? Um, is it just old-fashioned sort of racism that that drives it? what what's what's the sort of nucleus of Flemish separatism?
0: And be fee- feel free, Anton, to talk in general and sweeping terms about peoples as a whole, because <laughs> we want to bring that energy to the pod.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I really like the cultural essentialism when it comes to Flemings. I think I think it's 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 one of my uh, yeah one of my favorite activities. But I think it's all of the things that Alex mentioned, but in different degrees. I think the primary political argument for independence is an argument about what they call two democracies. Insofar as federalization has created these. A parallel structures of parliamentary delegation and parliamentary power which creates this idea that Belgium is basically just two democracies which would then get together on a federal level to kind of broker deals and it doesn't work anymore but it's very clear that under the surface the real backer also economic backer for Flemish independence is uh, export capital in the north which has mainly tied its own aid to, um, to, um, to Austrian industry and which really uses the Antwerp port as a way to profit from what is called the container revolution, et cetera, et cetera. And that actually wants to reorient Belgian state policy on a federal level around this export model and what doesn't want to pay transfers to the South anymore, and also wants to use Flemish independence as a way of pushing through a really, really hard neoliberal offensive. Um, so this is the economic backing for Flemish independence. It's just that the political constituency of Flemish independence includes some hardcore old-style separatists whose Parents probably collaborated with the Nazis who ran around with like uh, flags uh, throughout the 50s and 60s. But I think the real growing constituency, which is not inside the party, but which still votes for them, is a group of people who are, yeah, dissatisfied at the fact that Belgian party democracy has lost its root in society, but still supplies all of the policymakers. And this is just a classical Peter Mayer story about the void insofar as... Belgian party democracy has been hollowed out internally. People have left those big post war institutions that used to structure political life. And Flemish independence offers a kind of last mode of resistance against this isolated and alienated political class and voting for Flemish nationalists is not so much a claim for Flemish nationalism, but it's a way of putting a big middle finger up against the old Belgian establishment. So Mm. it's like Peter de Maire's void argument, but channeled into a separatist direction. So, yeah, I think that
2: parallels really interesting with um, perhaps the Northern um, Independence Party in the UK, I guess. But my question would be sort of what's the response to Flemish separatism? Is there a kind of one nation conservatism project. Um, like it, like, is this a serious like issue or is it just um, a bit like, and listeners might or might not actually even have heard of the Northern independence party, but you should tell us out. very
3: briefly what that is. Yeah.
2: Um, it's kind of what it sounds like. It's a quite um, I think it presents itself at least at this point in time. So on the, the 8th of April as, as quite a jokey kind of um let's nationalize gregs which is a um a beloved bakery chain in in the uk um and has some kind of stereotypical views of northern culture um but it, the idea is like reclaiming um this idea of the north from this kind of soci- socially conservative patriotic brexity a bit racist kind of negative image and saying well actually there's something um something here and this area isn't served by westminster so you know, give a as you said, Anton, give a kind of middle finger to the Westminster establishment and um, uh, have a have a free a free North at last. Um, so yeah, that's that's the British picture. But I think this is you know maybe it, what it does is it exposes I guess one of the the challenges that the the kind of contemporary conservative project has to to overcome, which is like how do you how do you level up the regions? How do you um, address the kind of yawning regional differences um, in the UK, and try and kind of do something about the fact that everywhere outside of London has has really suffered in the past 30, 40, however many years, um, because of the structure of the British uh, economy.
3: Yeah, Anton, I mean, it has regionalization in Belgium, because of course, Britain is much more centralized, or England certainly is, but I think Britain as a whole, whereas Belgium has been completely kind of regionalized for a long time now. Does, has that provided, you know, the South, for example, with more funds or more autonomy to pursue more projects which might level up that that sort of region or, or not? I mean, in, in that way, could it provide any model to a, a UK which might itself become uh, or might be fragmenting?
1: Yeah, and I think it's a sort of tantalizing parallel that certain people also on the British New Left have o- often explored in so far as Belgium was an example of how to modernize from this sort of 19th century old bourgeois world into uh, 20th century information or knowledge economy so It's very much the idea that the problem with the UK in the 1950s and 1960s, which is partly to do with the city, but also partly to do, as I say, with British political culture, was never able to give up its position as this kind of transatlantic money manager. It wasn't able to push that old imperial ranchier class off the stage. Well, Bellion pulled off this really interesting trick insofar as they buried that industrial capitalism that they shared with. In the 19th century, they moved very confidently into the knowledge economy. Certainly around the North, and they completely federalized and evolved all of these functions, and that supposedly made them a modern state. And I probably see Europeanization was such an important dimension of this because. Like cartelization as driven from Brussels basically wiped out the last bits of the of the Belgian steel sector and then it just forced this country to transition into a different model and in Britain there was just endless delay there was a refusal to actually fully integrate into Europe etc etc and then you just had this massive reckoning in the 1980s which proved destructive because no one had actually prepared an exit plan and supposedly Belgium has had a better way of dealing with this post-industrial transition which is kind of true insofar as Belgian corporatism and the Belgian welfare state has been maintained, but more out of dysfunction and irrationality. Insofar as you have so many veto players in this uh, Belgian federal system that it's impossible to implement a neoliberal program if you win elections um, on a certain on a certain level. And secondly, what it mainly done is in Wallonia is that it has turned the Wallonian political class into a kind of beneficiary of permanent transfers from the north. And since they don't have enough fiscal heft, they can't actually do their industrial policy. So the first thing, they can't do proper industrial policy. So it's not saved the post-industrial decline in Wallonia. While at the same time, it's also not going to solve the problem of global competition, which was again ever, ever worse in the 60s and 70s. So there I really want to caution against this idea that Belgium offers an alternative exit route out of uh, what Tom Nairn would call Eucania a la, la Belge, as they say, and actually suffers from its own variant of stagnation, which we should wonder about, is this something you actually want to choose for?
3: Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I think that's, that's a very useful and also maybe in reference to recent discussions we've had on this podcast about Scottish independence as well. Um, very briefly, just before we move on, very, very briefly, because I think maybe listeners might be interested if they've heard about it, about the uh, Belgian Workers' Party, the PTB, at least in its French uh, acronym. Um, that seems that's kind of interesting because it's a a, a kind of a a socialist workers party, which is, as far as I understand it, which is uh, not federalized that that it's a unitary body. And so that's kind of different and and very different to what George was talking about in terms of in the UK, you have the conservative party trying to hold it all together uh, in the, in, 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 excuse me, in Belgium. Um, It's a, it's a, it's a workers party doing that.
1: Yeah. And this is an interesting paradox for for the kind of transition story I've been telling insofar as the PTB is unique amongst all Belgian parties who have split since the 1970s. So you basically have a Flemish Socialist Party, you have a Walloon Socialist Party, you have a Flemish Christian Democratic Party, a Walloon Christian Democratic Party Party. But the P2B was started as a Maoist outfit in the 1970s. It had like a long multicultural coma in the 2000s where it tried to ally with radical uh, is like Islamic activists but then it made a turn towards a more sort of hardcore workers in the 2010s which actually proved quite powerful in the fact that they linked it up with Belgium still existing union movement but they are very much trying to refederalize this means that so many um, so many Uh, opportunities and responsibilities which have been delegated to regional levels they actually want to put back into the hands of the federal state because they say it's only on the level of the federal state that you can do proper fiscal policy and once you have fiscal policy you can actually properly redistribute and plan and this is just a sort of interesting irony of history insofar as regionalization might have Stopped Wallonian decline to some degree, but what the most radical parties or most properly radical parties in Belgium want is precisely to return or to refurbish some of those parts of the nineteenth-century unitary state. And I mean that's an interesting observation in itself.
3: Mm, interesting. Uh, I mean, in in reference to I guess the fact that Belgium Belgian immobilism has prevented a kind of neoliberal onslaught in the way that you got with Thatcher uh, in the UK. Um, It means that now with COVID, a lot of the sort of welfare arrangements, as you were saying just before, um, have remained in place. We're going to move this discussion on now onto what what we could call the emerging transfer state Um, in reference. And we're going to talk about the US and UK and and Brazil. I'm going to talk a little bit about, I just wanted to give you a word, Anton, on anything you might want to say about how Belgium has responded to the pandemic um, in terms of whether it's carried out cash transfer programs, whether it's stopped people from uh, had had a furlough scheme like you've had in the UK from paying paying people's wages or, or anything like that.
1: Yeah, I think we need to distinguish different levels of policy responses here. So on the logistical, or for example, the vaccine, or even the track and trace and the medical response, the the Belgian state has woefully underperformed and it's just like one of the worst students in the european class i mean I, we can look at the numbers but it's just clear that the belgian state has completely messed this up and there is a real realization now that it's not just a matter of political talent but there's also just an institutional problem insofar as devolution has created this capacity for people to constantly delegate responsibility to different levels and so no one is responsible for anything and you can't you can't hold anyone accountable at the same time because after 2008 Belgium didn't have a government they never implemented proper austerity and they kept all their classical Keynesian stabilizers, which is another sort of cunning of unreason that actually allowed people to keep its welfare state. And this means actually that the social response to the pandemic, at least for most workers, has been pretty beneficial compared to other neighboring European countries. So we still have a very, very generous unemployment insurance system. Unions have negotiated a kind of deal with employers where they maintain, I think, 70% of wage rates for people who had to go uh, out Uh, out of their workplaces, et cetera, et cetera. And precisely because we have what's called the Yen system, in which if you want to receive those unemployment insurances, you basically almost have to be in a union. So the union pays your unemployment insurances. This kind of corporate system also means that the cash transfer model, where the state just sends money straight to your bank account without intermediaries is actually far more difficult to implement because Belgian unions have always been quite resistant toward UBI and cash transfer proposals because they see it as weakening their representative claim of everyone who is wage dependent. So they say like even unemployed people are dependent on us and even people who work because we just represent everyone who works for a wage and this is why there always was a strong cash transfer skepticism within the Belgian syndicalists.
3: So that's, that's quite interesting because that I guess is a counterexample to what we're going to be talking about. And maybe we should start with the U.S., uh, where there has been this massive bill passed, um, basically giving people money. I mean, and I mean, obviously the sums aren't that great, at least in terms of the the fourteen hundred dollar uh, cash check. But this is this is obviously an emerging thing. I mean, Anton is working on a, a book now, as as he said when he introduced himself on on. Um, universal basic income. Um, so we're going to kind of discuss what seems to be emerging here. Um, but actually, maybe before we go discuss the US, maybe it might be worth, Phil, if uh, you want to talk us through what some of the schemes have been in, in the UK, because there does seem to be something emerging here, uh, which looks pretty different to, I mean, if you were to, to tell someone from, you know, in, in 2010, or let's maybe let's say 2012, in the depths of austerity, um, that the government would be guaranteeing people's wages and jobs. That would be uh, that come as a pretty big shock. So, Phil,
0: it's true. I mean, I don't know exactly how you would, if you were looking back retrospectively, how you might find kind of antecedents to um, what seemed to appear out of nowhere. So, the fact that the U. The British state effectively kind of nationalised the wage bill. So they paid up to, I mean, it wasn't, in, you know, there were some people who fell through the cracks, but they paid up to 80% um, on furlough for those people who weren't able to work, um, 80% of their wage. And it's, uh, I mean, in itself, it's it's remarkable. And apparently, you know, I mean, I, people had mixed experiences. Some people I know, apparently it went very smoothly and efficiently and it was all kind of handled very well, even for self-employed people who could simply kind of go to a website to register. So... All of that it still seems to me um, needs to be kind of historically processed to understand how quickly expectations were scrambled, I guess um, and how it seemed to come out of nowhere.
3: Yeah, right And uh, I guess in in the US what's emerging now is um, and for people who aren't familiar um, you know this one trillion dollar, 1.9 trillion dollar covid relief bill um which with many measures i mean many of them are kind of short term like child tax credit i understand just goes until 2022 but you know huge sums given out 25 billion for restaurants and bars 15 billion for airlines 8 billion for airports Thirty billion for transit and so on, um, and uh, three hundred fifty billion to support local government as well, um, as well as the aforementioned cash transfer to people. Um, so much so that David Brooks, the New York Times columnist, described Biden as a transformative president uh, for for undertaking this. Um, and there's been a lot of people kind of, uh, kind of, I guess, doing that sort of cartoon like big eyes. Uh, face with the kind of, uh, what are the Hanna-Barbera cartoons or whatever they are? Anyway, you know, with a kind of, wow, that's a lot of money kind of face. Um, and I think, it, you know, now either it's talking about pushing through the American Jobs Plan, which is uh, meant to be $2 trillion over eight years, mainly for infrastructure spending. So it's a 620 billion on an infrastructure package, but also a lot of spending on health and elder care and so on. So, lots of money there. And that comes in the context, I think, which is worth highlighting, maybe as a way of uh, providing more context for this discussion. The CARES Act, which was passed um, by Trump a year ago, which was uh, $400 billion initially, but it was leveraged by the Fed so as to become 10 times that amount. So you basically got... $4.7 trillion to support big business with basically no strings attached and permanent backing of the bond market. which um, So that was described as the largest political upward redistribution of income in history. And so I think those are kind of maybe two sides of the coin. But regardless, it looks like the state is spending a lot of money, whether it's for the good things that Biden is giving us or, or the bad things that Trump is doing. Um, Anton, any comment on that?
1: No, I I think there are several questions here, which we can like group in either descriptive or normative. And the first descriptive question is, um, is it fair to compare someone like Biden to FDR? Is Is this kind of FDR moment? And at the same time, without denying that what's happening is quite transformative, I think we need to be quite cautious and resist some of the sort of online or extremely online brain euphoria that that has been uh, fueled around this bill insofar as we need to put certain things into context also vis-a-vis 2008 insofar as this modality of crisis fighting which is mainly about liquidity provision um, is not unprecedented certainly in the anglo-saxon world so we all know that in the eurozone it took quite a while for draghi to get his bazooka out and just promise whatever to europe's banking sectors and save the euro but if you look at the bank of england or even the fed after 2008 this idea of just uh, completely turning open your money supply and flooding your markets with liquidity is actually not unprecedented. It's exactly what they tried to do to uh, master the 2008 crisis. We're now seeing it in an even more different modality, insofar as it's being applied more democratically. So you also see the bottom, it's like non-financial side of society, actually also receiving the same benefits and transfers or the same liquidity guarantees. And at the same time, it's, be- it's being way, way more generous because it's clear that no one gives a fuck about deficits anymore. So this M- MMT has been practically vindicated. Um, it's clear that the whole household metaphor for how a state spends is completely ludicrous. Larry Summers himself admitted it, where like we basically just go on the computer and add a few zeros and it's fine. <laughs>
3: no, one, no one cares. Mm-hmm. And they've discovered show- the man- magic money tree, as it's said in the UK
2: yeah, money printer go burr or whatever. But no, I think I think this is yeah. I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a kind of as you were saying, Anton, different modality. You've had quantitative easing. Now you've got like the people's quantitative easing. You've got that kind of development of that it kind of like weird post hoc support for bailing out the banks in after the global financial crisis. Now being applied to a slightly different. Um, sort of crisis, but it's the same like style of crisis fighting. And
1: what's so remarkable about it as a form of interventionism is that it doesn't interfere with property relations. It doesn't see the state as a planner. So the state will not mobilize its own resources. The state is not going to expropriate banks or going to expropriate companies. The state is not going to produce its own mask or its own Uh, for example, health equipment, but the state can just get out its uh, cash machine and basically grant money to everyone. And I think this is basically also what you're seeing with the infrastructure bill, which is still a version of the subcontractor state. It's like someone ordering a million Ubers and asking them to drive around the city, but they're not (laughs) going to get their own taxis and they're not going to tell the drivers what to do because they're not the state's taxis. And in that sense, it's a weird sense of discontinuity and continuity insofar as QE for the people, the regulatory and subcontractors, contractor state on steroids, but it's not neoliberal in any sense anymore insofar as deficit phobia or the panic fear that the assets of the middle classes and of the big finance will deflate or sorry, will inflate if you have too much money circulating the economy. That is completely gone. And in that sense, you can now allow yourself to do a bit more redistribution. The question is, is it socialism? And even is it FDR? Because FDR practically completely revolutionized the American state apparatus in a couple of weeks as a precedent. And then he created these federal government corporations. He the tennessee valley authority which were quite strong like market reducing mechanisms which were not market conforming at all and mm. everything that's in the biden bill is actually really quite market conforming insofar as we're going to stimulate the market but we're not actually going to interfere with the market
3: yeah phil this isn't really the state taking charge in the same way that you know you. A lot of uh, sort of the anti-austerity left might have said, or even, you know, sort of state socialists might have said, let's just, the state should do things. You know, the state should directly nationalize industries, should take, not just be, be accountable for social outcomes, but directly make things move, make things happen. And this is a little bit different, right?
0: Yeah, what Anton is saying is really interesting. And I mean, it kind of, um, it brings together, I suppose, some of the key um some of the key dynamics of, uh, like you said, I mean, the fact that you have a continuing kind of regulatory state, but pumped up with um, pumped up with a huge amount of money. Um, and I wonder, I mean, how far it kind of, I suppose, plays into these debates around MMT, because one of the criticisms from the left on MMT has precisely been about this fact that it's simply about um, kind of uh, the control of the money supply, essentially. And that it uh, obviates the need for any other kind of um, shaping of the market or shaping of society or any kind of political intervention. And so um, the vindicate, you know, insofar as it is a vindication for MMT, it might be kind of, it might be double-edged, I suppose.
1: And And I think there's an important ambiguity to recognize there insofar as there's a kind of Hegelian tipping point where you have the regulatory and the subcontractor state on steroids So it looks like neoliberalism in that sense, precisely because the sums are so large and because they don't care about deficits, there's something essentially unneoliberal about it. So we're in this weird liminal liminal moment about it, which makes it so confusing. But at the same time, and I think this is key to remember about those Biden packages, is that they don't decommodify. And Bernie Sanders is now fronting the parliamentary effort in the Senate to get these packages through, Bernie Sanders he, who is someone who ran in 2016 and 2020 on an essential program to decommodify the American medical market. We are now in the middle of a pandemic that's probably going to leave loads of people in ruinous medical debt. And for some reason, M4A is not on the agenda. And Biden himself has said that he will veto it as a president. But still, he has no actions whatsoever to getting the money printer out and showering American society with cash. And I think this indicates the modality of crisis fighting that this generation is cool with or feels okay with. It's like, we'll give everyone money, we'll keep the wheels turning, but we won't actually remove any spheres of human life from from the market, or we won't actually deprivatize or or make things public. And the fact that Bernie now has to support this program is obviously laudable in some sense because it's much needed relief, but M4A or Medicare for All his historic program is just off the agenda in a very, very weird way in the middle of a pandemic. I think it's a
2: good kind of Zizekian point to to make that it's like, it, it's not the um, end of neoliberalism. It's it's the extension of the logic to a kind of um, almost, or maybe even beyond that, beyond that, right on that, on that tipping point. It makes me think of the analogy also of like the, the state being the, the guide on the side rather than the, than the sage on the stage that is still like the, 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 the people know what they're, and, and you, in, in your new statements, new Statesman article, this comes through really clearly people still know what their needs are or more the market still is able to reveal people's needs. These are individual choices on the market rather than having a kind of, I guess, the collective authority to to just provide things that we think or that politically have been contested to be people's needs so it's still like completely grounded in that kind of i guess not really a political understanding of needs but just a kind of a cashified um kind of yeah i guess i guess it is just a, a market grounded um and quite abstract um understanding of what of
1: what needs are i think i think Alex should talk a bit about brazil because there the comparative angle is very important but just to add i think what we're seeing is a transition from a more punitive neoliberalism, where the, the state is basically the market police or a sort of referee who can get out the red card and find people. And in the states, the, the referee obviously just puts people in prison en masse. But what we're seeing now is that the re- referee is changing mentality. The referee feels easier supporting the game, but the referee is not going to become a trainer or the referee, referee is not going to become a player itself. The rules of the game, he's not actually going to interfere with. And this is, I think, what makes it such a weird form of post neoliberalism, where there is continuity, but there is also a lot of discontinuity insofar as in the 2000s, there was just no question of ignoring the deficit like that. But I wonder, for example, how that plays in the global south, for example, in the Brazilian case. And yeah, in this like-
2: analogy, who's, who's VAR if the state is the referee? <laughs> Who's the video system?
3: The
1: Constitutional Court, of
2: course.
3: Yeah, or or the securities, the, the surveillance state, for that matter. They've got their cameras up. Um, yeah, so I mean, well, I guess we can, we can you simps can all, uh, you can, simps can all stop drooling over Biden's huge package. Uh, that's, that's the takeaway from this. Um, as to Brazil, I think this is interesting, because if we're talking about moving beyond neoliberalism, or at least a massive reconfiguration in neoliberalism, uh, I'm skeptical about whether the global south is moving in that direction. Of course, there might be some influence, um, but, you know, most developing countries and emerging markets are going to suffer really badly from the COVID crisis, worse, uh, so the predictions say, worse than uh, the global north. Um, And I think there might still be punitive neoliberalism, I mean, certainly under Bolsonaro, that goes without saying, um, with an emphasis on the punitive. I would say that it's not even neoliberalism, but uh, necro-liberalism or, or nihil liberalism uh, whatever you want to call it. Um, nevertheless, and this is interesting, there has been a cash transfer scheme, um, the LCDW medici or emergency aid, which was given out in 2020 and has continued now. But I think there's some, there's some interesting things to pull out. So firstly, Brazil has had the famous Bolsa Família conditional cash transfer scheme, which was paid out to female heads of households on um, condition that kids were vaccinated and sent to school. It was to the poor and the extremely poor, um, and you know that was obviously a big success. Lula, the Lula government, had brought it in two thousand three, and it was heralded as this great poverty reduction scheme. Um, and it was paid through uh, the state bank, so to avoid corruption. Um, But, you know, again, it's just cash transfer to the very poor. So it was very important in terms of poverty reduction, Um, but it didn't really didn't entail any kind of shift in power towards the working class. Um, In fact, the the recipients of it aren't formally part of the working class. It's the sort of informal poor. Um, What the emergency aid that was brought in, which I I should add that Bolsonaro was against it, but then kind of Congress foisted it on him, and he then took credit for it. it, um, is paid out not just to the poor and very poor, like the Bolsa Familia, but also to unemployed and to un- and, and to informal workers earning a family income of up to three minimum wages. So that's 3,300 reais or about $590 a month, which is a, a equivalent to a nurse's income. Um, but of course, we're talking about a family income here. Um, and it, its impact was huge in 2020. Um, the period I, when it was, uh, you know, in when it was kind of going, it was kind of June to September, something like that. Um, it cut poverty in half, from 10 percent to 5 percent, and half of Brazilian families were impacted either directly or indirectly by the payment. So it was massive, and in fact, the the, the absolute sums involved were were very big too, because it, the monthly cost of the emergency aid was nearly the yearly budget of the Bolsa Família giving you some sense of, of how much it cost. The impact of it was that Bolsonaro's popularity jumped from around 25% up to nearly 40% uh, while this thing was was, uh, was going on. And now it's dropped back to around 25% now that the payments have been cut. So the, the problem is that now the, the emergency aid, which they took ages to, to renew and has then renewed, but at a much lower level. So instead of 600 reais a month, you're getting paid. 150 to 350 reais a month, depending on your situation. It hits many fewer people. So it's uh, previously applied to 68 million people now only 45 million. The point being is that um, this runs up against the budget limitations, which are very severe. Um, The government lacks the resources and it lacks, especially uh, support from economic powers to sustain it. Because you've basically got in Brazil two constitutional breaks on spending. You've got a golden rule, which means that borrowing can't exceed, uh, or rather, you can't use borrowing to finance current expenditures. And then you've also got a budgetary ceiling, um, which aims to reduce federal spending by 5% um, as a share of GDP over the course of a decade. And so this puts... um, real limits on any discretionary spending, and it really means cuts into health and education because those are the things which are, um, I guess the softest sort of things that you can dip into. So all of this means that even even Bolsa Família, so not the emergency scheme during COVID, but Bolsa Família was um, already kind of going, diminishing from 2015 onwards uh, since the crisis hit Brazil, um, because it needs a certain amount of budgetary space. And if the budget shrinks, so does that fund. Um, And so I guess this is my question here about whether how about how much uh how much this will actually be sustained because I don't know where the political will is for it if Lula wins against bolsonaro I mean I think there might there will definitely be an attempt to renew these cash transfer schemes and there seems to be wide political support for it and this is important. I think something like 25 of the 26 parties in parliament or 23 of the 24 parliaments in and party- in parties in Congress, excuse me, in- are in favor of some form of basic income. Now, none of these, I think, are universal schemes. Maybe some are, but um, some form of basic income scheme of maybe 200 reais, uh per month per family, which is, again, very little. And it's really just a poverty reduction scheme rather than sort of the universal basic income schemes that are that are talked about.
1: Yeah, so I think the the budgetary situation is is just where sort of center periphery dynamics kicking insofar as the imperialist powers or the former imperialist powers, because they have this position at the top of the financial pyramid, just have to worry less about deficits and their deficit phobia was always about sort of internal class struggle between what's called a deflationary bloc, who just didn't like big public debt because they wanted to safeguard the value of their assets. But now it's clear that... That block itself is also suffering from COVID and there's all kinds of just like public spending questions that come up and they have to worry less about the budgetary dimension. So the punitive neoliberalism is no more necessary. But at least what you seem to be saying in the Brazilian case, even if the budgetary constraints do create sort of momentums for austerity again, at the same time, you are seeing the rise of a very peculiar form of almost neoliberal welfare state which is fine with spending in cash and accepting informal labor, which doesn't de-casualize, um, but yeah. which accept, which accepts that you need to provide people a sort of floor under which they actually can't fall, but that floor has to be market-friendly. And this is the, the point about decommodification I made before, insofar as it's a very peculiar form of clientelism, certainly for someone like Bolsonaro, insofar as it's an abstract way of buying support through money, but it's not that all those informal uh the informal poor you're talking about, are actually in his party or have a sort of direct connection to his party machinery. It's yeah. a far more speculative, you could almost say, techno-populist form of welfare, which is not reliant on these institutional mediating factors that actually stand be- between you. And this is where the point about the Belgian Union movement is so important, because Belgian unions want unemployment insurance instead of UBI, because precisely they don't want to give up that mediating function. So do, do, yeah, do, you think
2: it's, do you think it's then better to call it welfare without the welfare state or a new form of, of the welfare state?
1: And um, Welfare without welfare state is a nice phrase, but I think actually we should just risk this phrase of the neoliberal welfare state because it's about providing security, but by reconciling security with market freedom. So there's no question that the mm-hmm. informal sector will disappear. There's no uh, question that property rights will be interfered with, but there is a sense in which um, the market needs to be cushioned, or at least you need a sort of softer mm. version of market-friendly
3: welfare, and and it encourages nice. um, or or allows for a, or makes politically more politically acceptable growing informalization and precaritization. I mean, this is obviously a massive deal in Brazil, where I think the informality rate is forty percent nationally, um, or and it's increased obviously during the pandemic. Um, but elsewhere as well, I think in the U S as well, it's a way of saying, well, you, you know, if you, if you ever really were concerned about having a stable job, you can forget about that now because the state's going to give you money. So you'll be able to participate in the market in a way that you weren't.
1: Yeah. Before. And there's some horrible statistics about this, where, for example, landlords are basically co- uh, cooperating with local municip- municipalities in the U S and checking whether people are eligible for checks. Mm. So this means that all of these sort of financial parasites and, And money changers that also swarm through the favelas, for example, because there is a big debt problem in many of these informal economies as well. That actually won't be changed. But at the same time, people will still be receiving their checks. So there's no sense, for example, that you won't be paying for any of those bills. Those bills will still have to be paid, but at least you'll get money in your account to actually pay them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So presumably, though, I mean, the same the same thing that happened with QE will recur, that all of this extra cash will be hoovered up by the investment class by large corporations at some at some level or other it'll be filtered upwards and so it'll end up I mean it'll keep you know it'll have kept people going but um presumably the you know without the kind of institutional structures needed to shape society in a new way and like you say to restrict and curb the market in different um in different forms and different
1: domains um the
0: money will end up flowing back uphill
1: yeah and I think here, the political argument becomes really tricky because people will survive because of this money. That's undeniable. It's a kind of emergency welfare, which which you, you shouldn't be against or you're just being a neoliberal stooge. But at the same time, there needs to be a consciousness about the fact that it doesn't actually entail that big structural changes in the market economy. It's very much market friendly. And at least on the left, there needs to be reflection on what that market friendliness signifies politically.
3: Well, and, and insofar as that actually ends up being a transfer upwards, Um, It seems to be a much more deliberate uh, intervention by the state to to shape outcomes. But, you know, in in favor of uh, in favor of the wealthy, even more so than in kind of peak neoliberalism, perhaps.
1: There's this great piece by Daniela Gabor, who's a kind of specialist, certainly on international finance. And she makes the point that the reason that finance also American finance likes the cash transfer approach so much is because they are worried about the value of some of the assets they hold. So I think Biden's infrastructure plan should also be seen in that light insofar as you can check the consumption of the American population for so long, but at the same time, some companies just need to make sure that someone will buy their products because they're all (laughs) leveraged against these big banks and giving people cash transfers will allow for consumption while at the same time safeguarding the value of all these assets at the time. So it leaves a structural power of finance intact while at the same time giving people a measure of security. And there I think Phil's point about QE 2.0 but now in a sort of more democratic direction is like dangerously pre-monetary in so far as what is actually going to shift in, in capitalism because of this?
3: Yeah, well, I, I think we should... Also, ask what has caused this shift because it still is significant anyway. I mean, even if we're you know dismissing it as you know something which doesn't curb the market in any way, uh, it's still a big deal in terms of the state the the, the sums the state is spending. So we're going to continue this discussion on Patreon, uh, which is going to be a bonus episode. Uh, if you want to follow us there, it's at patreon.com/slash/bungacast. Um, but one last question here before we move over, uh, which is what's been responsible. For this shift? I mean, obviously the COVID crisis like most immediately, but has populism been successful, I guess, in forcing political elites to respond to people's needs or to their to the fact that they're not able to fully participate in, in the market? At least that's the way they conceive it. So the way to participate more in the market is to give people uh, some cash. Um, so who's responsible for this? I mean, and to be provocative, has it been AOC or Trump who's done it in the US or in the UK? Has it been Brexit or has it been Corbyn who's, who's uh, done this?
1: Uh, yeah, I really want to hear George and Phil's view on this. And I know that Phil, for example, will will have a less, <laughs> diplomatic, have a less diplomatic stance on this. I think my middle way is that it's kind of a process without a subject. And everyone made their own contribution along mm-hmm. the way. Um, there is a kind of fallacy on the left where they claim almost exclusive paternity of this policy revolution or this redistributive revolution where it's a kind of post hoc ergo proctor hoc uh, fallacy, as Ben Fong noted, that damage insofar as we did some stuff, things changed, so therefore we caused the change. And yeah. it's very clear that, well, the question you have to ask, would the left have been able to force this kind of policy change without COVID? And I think we just need to also fix our eyes on the fact that this is a massive planetary crisis. And if Biden would have underperformed I think even a lot of people in the American ruling class would have really, really been astonished at it. And actually, the, the stimulus enjoys widespread elite support as well. So I think a lot of people realize just what a deep, deep crisis uh, COVID is. At the same time, I do think people like Bernie and AOC have made it clear to some democratic legislators at least that you can be redistributive or you can ask for the state to be more active and not run into any electoral risks. The sort of non-boomer constituency, or the constituency that doesn't just want to inflate boomer assets, it's now large enough to get you enough votes. And there is a constituency out there to just wants a more generous welfare state, uh, both in the US and in Europe. So there, I think the left has actually determined the agenda to quite an important extent. Many law wakers are became, becoming a bit more risky. But if it's only the millennial left child, I don't think that's the case.
2: So just, just to
1: jump in here quickly, um... So post hoc ergo
2: prop the hoc is a name of a classic West Wing episode, as I'm sure many of our listeners will, <laughs> will already know, um, which I don't think is the the, the main, the main point here. Um, but no, I mean, it seems like there's, there's kind of, at this point, there's remarkably little um, opposition to it. That's, you know, there's definitely, there's there's a consensus that this is the you know this is this is the right way to proceed at this at this point in time and who's gonna be um who's gonna be brave or, or foolish enough to to kind of to stand against it. But yeah, I just wanted to get that West Wing um nod in there for many of our hardcore Solking fans.
3: <laughs> Thanks, George. Um Phil quickly Who
0: are the who are the uh, I didn't even know who that group is anyway. Um there are there are dozens of them. Dozens. <laughs> It's a tough question. I'm I find it hard to think that um that the kind of the lavish scale of what Biden is doing would be quite as lavish and quite as extensive and ambitious insofar as it is ambitious in quantitative terms at least, um, were it not for the fact that um Trump is kind of, you know, Trump effectively kind of stirred up the Hornet's nest of working-class politics in, in the U.S. for the first time in a long time. Um, and certainly with, um, and I think that's definitely the case in the U.K., and that's more obvious because the Tories are trying to build a new kind of um, coalition, which involves a new geography appealing to um, the de-industrialized, uh, the deindustrialized north of Labour strongholds. And there's a by-election right now in the Hartlepool district, which has been Labour for decades. The Tories are predictably ahead, and it looks like they'll win. So I think to that extent I think it's um in both cases while I'm drawn to um Anton's account of it as a process which nobody's fully in control of it still seems to me that um you know I think uh, more more weight has to be given both to Brexit than to Corbyn and probably to Trump than to Biden.
3: Fair, okay. Fair. We will uh, continue this discussion and more specifically, we're going to turn to uh, our favorite topic, the end of the end of history and whether this sort of move beyond what we knew as neoliberalism or certainly neoliberal austerity. Means uh, a resumption of history, and, and we're going to try to be kind of methodical about that and working through it, and then we're going to finish off by discussing uh, neo-feudalism, whether that whether that's our future, um, and maybe a little bit about whether Japan or Brazil offer uh, images of an alternate future. Um, that'll all be on Patreon. That's Patreon.com/Bungacast. So that's it uh, for this uh, public show. Uh, catch you later. Bye bye.